The title tonight of my talk is How to Tame an Elephant. And I would like to talk about the hindrances. And maybe for some of you that's a really familiar topic. Maybe for some it's a rather new topic. So I hope you can take something out of this talk. And I would like to begin with a quote from the discourses. Luminous practitioners is the mind, and it is defiled by incoming defilements. The uninstructed run-of-the-mill person, so that's us, doesn't discern that as it actually is present, which is why I tell you that. For the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person, there is no development of the mind. Luminous practitioners is the mind, and it is freed from incoming defilements. The well-instructed disciple of the noble ones discerns that as it actually is present, which is why I tell you that. For the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, there is development of the mind. Much could be said about these lines. They describe the mind as being luminous and radiant by nature. And how this mind is being clouded by defilements that come in. Whoever understands this, the Buddha says, who knows this, for him or for her, it is possible to develop the mind, to transform it, and ultimately to liberate it. Tonight I would like to talk about such impurities or defilements that we can encounter in our meditation, but that also afflict the mind so often in our daily life, the so-called hindrances. They cause a lot of tension, stress and confusion, and they are what prevent peace and happiness in our mind. And that is why they are called hindrances. And they are forces that make it hard for the mind to collect, to calm down. And they are really tendencies that sidetrack us from our deepest aspirations. And especially in the first few days of a retreat, which we still are in, um, these hindrances can be very prominent and challenging. And instead of the stillness that we had hoped for, we just get endless inner chatter, or we might feel tense or out of balance, or we, we might feel tired or sluggish. And then we find ourselves lost again in some fantasies or we are caught in a lot of aversion, you know, the whole show that's going on. And so, as many of you have noticed, it is not always pleasant to meditate, to really look inwards into this mind and just witness all the motions that this mind goes through. So what we get to see in meditation is not just good news. And yet... Without realizing it, in the midst of this whole struggle and trying, 
we are learning important lessons about our mind. So as we spend time with this mind and we gradually become more conscious, we also become more familiar of the workings of this mind. Here, because we have less distractions than in everyday life, you know, not much work to do, not uh, engaging in conversations, no reading, no writing, no internet, no smartphone, we can see more clearly what is actually going on in our own mind. So we deliberately tune into our own experience so that we can notice what is going on and often we become aware of how little control we actually have. Somehow we see this unruly mind just doing what it wants. In the tradition, the untrained mind is being compared with a wild elephant. So an elephant, uh, an animal that is quite wild and uh, reactive and that can also be dangerous at times. And for years, maybe, we have allowed this wild elephant to run around freely, to just follow every impulse and to also create quite a lot of suffering in our lives. And now if we practice the Dharma, we learn how to tame this unruly elephant. We learn how to work with it so that over the time this elephant will become more skilled and it will become our best friend. So we practice mindfulness, the ability to become aware of our felt experience. Moment by moment, we practice calming the mind, collecting it. We practice interest, energy, joy, ease, All this with the intention of becoming fully aware of what is actually going on in our heart and in our mind in a more continuous way than in everyday life. So often, you know, in everyday life, maybe you have noticed that our mind is so dispersed and um, lost that it just lacks the power to actually attend to what is going on in a deep and continuous way. So we more have a, you know, episodic mindfulness that catches one moment and then two minutes later again a moment and then maybe half an hour later. And so we don't really get the full picture. And if now we pay attention to what is going on, we do not always like what we see. So it's a normal part of meditation practice that we go through a whole range of experiences from very nice, pleasant experiences, blissful experiences at times, to the really, really hard and painful, challenging experiences at other moments. And it is really a crucial part of meditation that we learn to see and acknowledge the full spectrum of our experience so that we really acknowledge difficulties as they arise just like weather patterns 
that pass through our minds impersonal weather patterns rather than taking them personal. No need to blame ourselves for having them. No need to become harsh or self-critical about them. Rather, what we need is a kind and curious attitude so that we can simply acknowledge all the experiences that arise for us during a day. So that's a really important part of the practice, to include everything that comes along without denying or excluding any aspect of our being. Okay, so these five hindrances, if we know them, this will help us to better identify them when they arise and, you know, to be a little bit um, on our guard so that we can be mindful of them rather than falling prey of them. To them. That is the problem with hindrances, you know, that they can trap us and that we fall into them because, as one of my teachers says, you know, they don't usually come with a big sign, caution, I am a hindrance. Rather, they come in a very seductive way. And so we have to be alert so that we recognize them when they arise. So these five meditation hindrances don't know whether they are at all familiar for you, or sense desires, or greed, ill will, or aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety, or worry, and skeptical doubt. And of course, there are reasons sometimes we because um, there are reasons why we don't want to see them. Sometimes maybe we want to be a good meditator and so we prefer just to pretend, you know, that nothing is going on for us or we consider them to be the wrong experience. So it's good to be aware of this tendency just to, you know, edit our experience a little bit um, so that it fits with our self-view better. But, you know, in the long run, we learn that each experience is okay and that there is nothing that we need to be afraid of. Maybe also we are so much under the control of a hindrance that we actually believe what it tells us. So, for instance, that it is now very important to engage in a certain thought, that this is really important that I follow this thought stream, or it feels just so seductive to follow a pleasant fantasy or to go into some psychological analysis. This means we believe what the hindrance tells us, that it will make us happier, and we have lost the mindfulness of it. The third possibility could be that we have become so used to a certain hindrance that it is just such a normal part of our experience that we just think it's normal to have this mind state. So maybe we think we are just offering constructive criticism when in reality we are full of aversion against something. 
So it seems just like such a normal part of our experience um, that we don't actually notice what is going on, like, like old furniture. So the practice is that we really recognize them when they arise, because they will arise. As long as you are not in a deep absorption state, you will have them, that's for sure. And actually, it's a good sign if we see them, if we start to recognize them, because it's a sign that we are actually engaging in this mind cultivation. So we are trying to cultivate the mind and of course this will bring us to our limits and this will bring some challenges. It's very natural, nothing to be concerned about. It's more easy if we really understand that they are not personal. So Sayadaw Utejaniya, a Burmese meditation teacher says, We meditate because we want to understand defilements. We want to be aware of the defilements that arise as Dhamma nature. What is wholesome is Dhamma nature. And what is unwholesome is also Dhamma nature. So hindrances are Dhamma nature, which means they are not personal. They simply arise as a phenomenon in our mind due to certain causes and conditions. So, you know, if you tell us in the interviews that you are struggling with sleepiness or restlessness also, it's not like we are going to say, really, you're sleepy? What's wrong with you? Because it's, it's just such a common experience. All meditators experience them and, you know, throughout the centuries, already at the time of the Buddha, the monks were complaining about having these hindrances. So, let's go to the first one, which is sensual desire or greed. So, this hindrance refers to this desire for something that promises pleasure or satisfaction, or praise, or something similar. And I just want to mention that, you know, desire in itself is not always problematic. Like, when we have a desire for spiritual growth, for liberation, that is considered very, very wholesome. Yeah. So we don't uh, talk about that, but what we're talking about is the desire for sensual pleasures, which can really get in the way of the mind training. And it's interesting, today, you know, know in our consumerist culture, sensuous desire is actually celebrated and supported a lot. If you think of all the you know, advertisements um, or all the food pictures in the internet, I've heard, I actually don't see them, but I, I've heard that people post food pictures. I cannot really understand the point of that. <laughs> then I rather eat the food rather than looking at pictures. But, you know, there is, some, there is a sense of celebrating sense uh, pleasures and, it, and also feeding this kind of desire for sense pleasures. So sometimes 
people consider this kind of sense desire actually as a sign of vitality. And you, you could say, of course, from an evolutionary perspective, it has a certain function that we seek, you know, contact, we seek shelter, we seek food, of course. However, the problem is that desire can really capture us and ensnare us. Whenever there is desire for something, a nice cappuccino, uh, relaxing sleep, a bit more comfortable seat in the meditation, whatever, this desire can take up so much time and energy. And compared to what we desire, everything else becomes relatively boring and uninteresting. And sometimes we become so obsessed with something, it really becomes a feeling of, I really need this. I need a cup of coffee right now. Otherwise, I'm not going to survive this day. Sometimes even desire can drive people to act in pretty unskillful ways. When there is desire in the mind, there is always an accompanying shadow of this desire, which is basically a feeling of inadequacy, a feeling of need, of not having enough. Somehow there is a sense of, I am not enough, or this moment is not enough. So it's a state of dissatisfaction. And so the mind projects the satisfaction onto some future object or event and imagines how wonderful and fulfilling this will be. However, what we don't see, blinded by desire, is that usually the anticipated uh, satisfaction is greater than the actual experience of getting the desired object. Have you experienced this? You know, yeah, I see many nods, no? <laughs> you know, how you long for certain things to happen, the end of school, and you think this will be the beginning of a happy life, and then, okay, you know, you, you know the next thing arises, and you think, okay, this apartment, the right partner, you know, we always project our happiness on things, and then when they actually arrive, a new pair of shoes, yeah, it's nice, and then somehow it doesn't give us the sustained happiness that we had imagined. Not long after the fulfillment of one desire, the next desire for another object arises. So desire has the characteristic built in that it's not satisfiable. Yes? So Desire always continues seeking the next fulfillment. It's the nature of desire to desire. Just the objects keep changing, yes? But the pattern is the same, and that's where we get hooked. The second blindness around desire is that we don't notice how unpleasant the experience of desire itself actually is. Um, 
if you turn to your experience when there is desire, you will notice how unpleasant this feeling is. We, so we need to really not just focus on the object that we long for, but turn around our attention and look into our own mind, rather. So we can really feel in the body and in the mind how unpleasant and how tense this state of desire is. There is a sense of leaning forward, leaning out of our center. We are losing our ground in desiring something. So desire is really the opposite of peace, of contentment of this peaceful state when the mind is actually happy with how it is right in this moment. Sensual desire can be very strong and obvious, and it can also be very subtle at times. So in meditation, very often desire comes in forms of images or thoughts, you know, obsessive thoughts or images that just keep coming back. And there is something very seductive about such thoughts. And there is just this um, impulse to keep repeating the same thought for the 500th time again and again. And we can really spend so much time being lost in our fantasies and dreams. So we're dreaming about the next holidays, about this person, about the tea break, um, how to get the recipe of a certain meal that we have eaten, and so on, until we wake up and we find ourselves back in this boring meditation hall and back in this aching body. Sometimes we can notice the leaning forward physically in our body this inclining towards the object. We can actually feel it in a very bodily, somatic sense. Desire can also manifest as a desire for certain meditation experiences, like when we are waiting and hoping for some you know, big bang happening, some insight for, for more calm. Um, sometimes you might notice that you are very subtly trying to manipulate your experience. Yeah, desire, wanting. Sometimes it is because we are experiencing something unpleasant and we are waiting for the meditation to end. So desire for the end of unpleasantness. So, interestingly, about desire is how this works. Have you noticed how desire does the job that we fall into it? How it affects our perception of things? Maybe you have noticed how the desired object could be things, people, situations, events look much more attractive and promising when we look at them through the lenses of desire. So the desired object can somehow become bigger, uh, brighter, 
It's almost like in the commercials, you know, where things seem so glossy. And the Buddha actually described exactly this through the simile of water. He compared the mind to water, which is by nature actually totally pure and clean, but which can be clouded and muddied by different circumstances. And so in the case of this hindrance of sensuous desire, the mind is like water that has been colored by the addition of dyes. So through this coloring, the water is not clear anymore, and we see everything through these glasses, through these colors. And it's also fascinating to watch how this perception can change once the desire wanes. Sometimes in retrospect, I have found myself, myself wondering, what was going on with me at that time? Why was I so crazy, you know, about a person, about a thing, when I was in a more sober mind state? So the perception changes when the desire comes in and when the desire disappears again. So it's really important that we recognize when desire is there. So that we really turn the attention away from the object towards the mind. So that's not always easy, yes, because we are almost glued to the object with our attention. But it is a crucial movement that we need to learn in meditation to turn around. If we can stay mindful of desire itself rather than of the object, so really turning towards the experience of desire in our body and mind, we can notice that if we don't feed it any longer, so if we are just mindful without going into the story, into the daydreams, just feeling it in the body in a very physical, immediate sense, we can notice how it just disappears, vanishes, goes, without leaving a trace. This is an important insight to realize how desires can completely disappear if we don't feed them any longer. There is an inner freedom in seeing this more clearly, seeing that we don't have to follow desires, that if we don't feed them, they will just pass away. Another aspect that can also help, you know, counteracting sensual desires is when we develop the mind and learn how to calm and to collect it, as we have been doing in these days. Because the more we can actually tune into a feeling of pleasantness and well-being in meditation, the more we can touch into this nice feeling of a collected mind, uh, the less the mind will chase worldly pleasures. So the mind becomes more and more happy just resting in the experience. So the second hindrance is ill will 
or aversion. Aversion has the quality that it wants to push away an object. Actually, the Pali word for aversion, patiga, literally means to strike against something. We experience aversion in all kinds of variations. You know, hate, anger or rage, these are very strong forms of aversion. It could be ill will, hostility, annoyance, also fear. And it can be irritation, pessimism, crappiness, or just a resistance to what is going on, or even boredom. So there is a whole spectrum. With aversion, there is a perception about everything that is not good in a situation or in a person. So we see what is bad, what is inadequate about something. And we have this belief that it would be better if this object would go away. So maybe we are experiencing something unpleasant. You know, someone annoys us or we have a back pain or the weather is too hot or too cold. Anything really. And so quickly the mind can go into this complaining mode or rejection mode. And sometimes I find it actually funny to see the reactivity of the mind. Once in a three-month retreat at IMS in winter, I was doing walking meditation in the morning outside in the snow. And the sun was just rising, but it was still behind the trees And I noticed how the thought went through my mind, they really should cut down these trees so that I would have some sunshine. (laughs) So we become pretty selfish, you know, out of this aversion to the cold, very self-centered. That which annoys me, please should go away, even if they have to cut some trees, yeah. So perhaps we notice in meditation how our thoughts are just circling around something that is unpleasant. Maybe we are inwardly telling off this person, you know, having an inner trial against this person, or we find ourselves already writing notes to the teachers. Please, could you ask people not to sneeze so loudly or to cough so loudly or to slam doors or whatever? Yeah, such suffering that we are going through. So it's really important, again, with aversion, to bring the attention to how it actually feels in the body and in the mind. As we have seen, aversion can sometimes also trigger desire as the mind is somehow trying to get away from the unpleasantness by looking for something more pleasant. Maybe you have seen that. You know, when we are experiencing difficult emotions, the mind easily escapes into dreams of food or sex or wants to have a cup of tea or some chocolate or something. And I was once really struck by this tendency after a breakup of a relationship just to see my mind, how it would go into pleasant fantasies again and again and again, just 
so that I wouldn't have to feel the pain and the grief about this breakup. So it was just a way that my mind was trying to cope with this situation. So it's important to see how these experiences are relating to each other, huh? how aversion can bring up desire. And not to judge ourselves if such an aversion arises. So rather than see the pain that is underlying, seeing the, the hurt, maybe, that wants to be seen, that wants to be held. Aversion can also manifest as a pretty harsh voice of self-criticism, this tendency, you know, to evaluate and judge ourselves, to criticize and to condemn ourselves. So just be aware if there are thoughts in your minds like, I'm not good at doing this practice, or... I'm not trying hard enough. I really ought to do this better. Sometimes we can also notice a resistance in our practice to what is going on. So we somehow try to keep the experience at a distance. The Buddha compared aversion and ill will to boiling water. You know this state when the mind is literally boiling or seething, and we lose the coolness of a relaxed mind. So it's easy to recognize that this is a pretty unpleasant mind state. It is a coarse and harsh and pretty rough energy. And this makes aversion different from desire, which at first glance might not seem too unpleasant. So the good thing about aversion is it is so unpleasant that usually practitioners are quite motivated to do the practice because they want to overcome this painful uh, mind state. Um, and again, you know, when we become aware of such an aversive mind state, it's important to acknowledge it without identifying with it or as Kirsten said so nicely, becoming it. So rather than making this conclusion, well, you know, I'm just a very aversive person and I have always been an aversive person and it has to do with my whole history and so on and on, creating a whole story around it, I can just acknowledge this is a mind state in this moment. And we will notice there are other mind moments where there is no aversion in the mind. So it's just a mind state. It's not who I am, and I don't have to identify with it. I can simply know aversion as aversion. So our responsibility is not that we shouldn't have aversion. Our responsibility is in how do we meet it, how do we relate to aversion when it arises? How can we bring in wisdom and compassion? So often it's important when there is aversion that we bring compassion to ourselves because this you know, aversion is actually a pretty unpleasant and difficult mind state. So really acknowledging, wow, that hurts. 
and we can wrap, kind of wrap the whole aversion like in a warm, soft blanket of gentleness and compassion and just let it be and just know, yes, now, right now there is aversion in the mind. And you know how, doesn't matter how big it is, you can always make the compassion, the metta, the kindness bigger than the aversion and in this way just hold it and wrap it with kindness. And this will help to, to soothe the mind, to relax a little bit. And also here, if we continue to do the practice, if we consciously nurture a sensitivity for pleasurable experiences in meditation, this will counteract the tendency to ill will and it will nurture more positive and happy mind states. Then we have the third hindrance, sloth and torpor or laziness and lethargy. So the Buddha compared those two mind states with water that is completely filled with al algae, do you say algae? So maybe you know these small and still ponds that are so grown through with them that the water is very um, stagnant and stale. And this hindrance feels somewhat similar. Actually, sloth and torpor are two different mind states, but they always come together in our experience. Sloth is a mind state of laziness or sluggishness. So the mind just lacks the energy and the strength and the drive. It prefers to hang around and it is unable to pull itself together. And such a lazy mind lacks the interest in practicing. And it just prefers to chill and to be at ease. So we might think, Oh, I will just practice meditation, lying in the sunshine. Didn't they say that we can also practice lying down meditation? And in this way, we fool ourselves, you know. We don't want to acknowledge that what is actually going on is a certain laziness. Laziness lacks motivation and the energy to tackle challenges and to get things done. Rather, it procrastinates. Oh yeah, I will just have a cup of tea and then afterwards I will go to the walking meditation. So when this mind factor is strong, it makes it really hard for us to apply ourselves wholeheartedly to the practice. The other quality, torpor, is like a heavy blanket that covers everything and it brings such a sense of inertness and heaviness. The mind feels very dull, insensitive and immobile. And under this influence, it is very lethargic, it can feel very foggy also, and we easily go into a sleep during meditation. And of course, you know, when we feel tired during meditation, it must not always be the hindrance of sloth and torpor. I just want to mention that. It could be a genuine tiredness. 
So we need to distinguish. Especially in the first days of a retreat, it can be that you feel very tired after having worked a lot or not having had enough sleep. So if that is the case for you, just give yourself the time to come back, to balance, to rest enough. And then after a few days you will see, is there still a lot of tiredness? And then you might notice, okay, maybe that's a hindrance. So when the mind is under the influence of sloth and torpor, there is really not much going on. The mind is not alive, it's not alert, and it's really a little bit like this animal, the sloth. Have you seen this animal, the sloth? You know, they, they are just hanging in a tree. I have once seen a sloth. It's just hanging there, and not much happening. It takes two days, no, I think two weeks for a sloth to digest one meal. So everything is very, very slowly. So the problem is with sloths that this mind state can actually feel pleasant. That's the problem. Sometimes people mistake a certain state of lethargy with collectedness because, you know, they are just sitting and it feels easeful, the meditation is passing pre pretty quickly, but they don't really know what was happening, actually. If you ask them, okay, were you aware, what was going on, they don't really know much to report. So that could be a sign that there was some sloth or torpor. So that is really something to watch out when there is this kind of pleasant cocooning feeling, oh, nice, oh, yeah, not much going on, it's very peaceful. It could be, you know, certain lethargy coming in. One reason why the mind goes into such a state is the perception that we have in this moment. You know, there is a perception in this moment of, oh, actually there is no, not much going on in here. It's pretty quiet in this meditation hall, no drama, I have no work to do. Um, there is also not much promising, not much excitement. And so the mind simply turns off, shuts down. It could also be that for once we don't have a big inner drama and so there is just not much stimulation and things appear more flat, boring, neutral, quiet. And no wonder that the mind goes into this mind state if it is so used, as many of our minds are, so used to stimulation. Yeah. Sometimes also sloth and torpor are a way of avoiding unpleasantness or painful experiences. So we shrink back from actually meeting something that is there and we prefer just to numb out, just to, you know, dissociate. So we hope that somehow things will sort themselves out, we just sit and we wait and we disconnect from what is actually happening. Again, when sloth and torpor arise in the mind, it's important to recognize them and not to take them personally. And 
when the mind is so lazy and tired, we can, and it's actually skillful to do so, bring in more interest. So really see if you can um, brighten the mind by um, exploring this mind state. So rather than falling into the tiredness, make the tiredness an object of your exploration. Try to investigate what kind of mind state this is, how it feels. Um, so curiosity is really important. Another way of practicing with sloth and torpor is to take a moment to reflect on our motivation for this practice. So to think about the benefits that this practice can bring us and to form a clear intention of being awake. Because, you know, if we have a real clear intention to connect with our experience again and again, connect with the sensation of the breath, for instance, of the body, that's actually the classical antidote to sloth and torpor. This aiming and connecting with our experience again and again um, will um, bring up more energy in the mind. Other helpful things when there is a lot of sloths and torpor are opening the eyes, breathing in more deeply, energizing the body intentionally, standing up, rubbing the earlobes can help, they say at least, um, placing the hands on top of your head or if it all doesn't help splash cold water into your face and just wake up then we have the opposite we have sloth and torpor uh, the opposite of sloth and torpor restlessness and anxiety or worry and here too we have two mental factors but they can come um, separate from each other. The water simile for restlessness and worry is water that is constantly being whipped up by the mind so that there are many ripples and waves on the surface that prevent us from seeing clearly. And as the image suggests, in this state, our perception of the world is fragmented incoherent and constantly moving. Restlessness is a state of agitation, of excitement and distraction. Both the mind and the body can be affected by restlessness and this can be quite unpleasant to bear. Maybe you know it. Here we have too much energy and not enough holding capacity which makes it difficult for us to remain physically quiet or to sustain our attention on an object. So the mind finds it hard to actually land and to connect with experience. Maybe we find it really difficult to sit still, you know, and we are constantly adjusting our posture. 
maybe you know that you know there is some discomfort in some area maybe you have some discomfort in the shoulder and then you feel oh, what would be good and then you adjust your posture and oh yeah very nice this ha has brought some relief and two minutes later a different part of the body starts to hurt and then again you have to take care of this part and then again after four minutes in another part of the body there is some discomfort and so it never ends you know we are in a constant micromanaging mode and we never come into a stillness so it is important at the beginning of a sitting really to take care how we take our seat how we find a seat that is reasonably comfortable and then when there is discomfort, to learn to wait for a moment, you know, not to follow each impulse, but to see if we can just let a certain discomfort be there for a moment and still stay with our object. And if we realize it is really too much and it is really distracting us, then to bring a lot of mindfulness to the intention to move and to move mindfully so that we include the whole process in our practice. So it's not about, you know, sitting totally stiff and rigid, but inclining the body gently to sit a little bit more still. Restlessness can also manifest as mental agitation and jumpiness, as flashing thoughts or images or endless mental proliferation. Sometimes we have extremely trivial thoughts. Sometimes we start you know, writing poems in our minds or uh, songs or whatever, if you have a creative <laughs> nature. Sometimes there is a lot of planning going on, a lot of complaining about something, or we are constantly thinking about what kind of practice we should do. So, should I stay with the breath, but it's difficult, or maybe I should switch to metta meditation, but they are telling us we should stay with the body, but no, but right now maybe I should just feel the whole body. So, you know, there is constant change of our method. That's also a sign of restlessness. In any case, the mind is just being pulled, you know, in all different directions. And it's unable to immerse itself in the experience and to really feel and sense what is there. So we stay on the surface of things. And it is said that the mind that is befallen by restlessness somehow hovers in a small distance above the experience. So we are not really in touch with experience. Now, when we feel restlessness in our mind, it's usually hopeless to try to force the mind willfully to stay with an object, you know, forcing the mind to concentrate on something. Rather, it's much more helpful to uh, let the field of awareness be spacious, as we did it this afternoon, 
and to give the energy enough space to move in, but to have a clearly defined space in which it can move. So even if the mind jumps within this field, you still will have an awareness of what is happening and you can again and again then bring it back to your main focus. Then also see if you can nurture a quality of calm and joy in the mind and in the body. For instance, by gently lengthening the out-breath for a while, really breathing in a very slow and comfortable way, that can also support a sense of calm and ease. The second hindrance in this group is worry or anxiety. So sometimes in meditation we might have pangs of conscience about some past actions. You know, we might have some old memories arise. Don't know whether you have had that. Um, that can bring up a lot of guilt or shame. And it's actually quite a common thing to happen. If we have acted in unskillful ways, then these worries are just a karmic fruit that we have to face. And that is actually why ethical behavior is so important for this whole practice, because it is the ground on which our heart-mind can flourish. But if we become aware of past unskillful deeds, and we all do, you know, we need to find a way how to forgive ourselves. We need to acknowledge whatever we did, but at the same time not get stuck in self-judgment. Because, you know, this is past. What has happened is past, and we are now not the same person anymore that we used to be then. So we can make a resolve that from now on, we will try to be more careful in our actions and then we can put those concerns away and just come back to the practice. Sometimes also there are fears or hopes about the future or we have concerns about what others might think about us. Like, for instance, when we have to sneeze or cough during meditation or swallow, and then we feel the tension building up in our body. Oh, what are the others going to think of me? Then just remind yourself that these thoughts are not well-founded. They are just the fabrications of a nervous mind. So don't believe those thoughts but just remind yourself of the task right now and you know the best thing to do for yourself is to simply apply yourself to the practice as best as you can you cannot do more than that you just do the best you can and that's enough um, with both Restless and worry, restlessness and worry, it's important that we really appreciate any pleasantness that might be there. The pleasantness of being awake, the pleasantness of the stillness underneath the agitation, uh, whatever. And in this way, we gradually we support development of meditative joy, which is the antidote to restlessness and worry. 
Then the fifth hindrance is skeptical doubt. The Buddha compared doubt to water which has become clouded with mud and dirt. So the mind sees self and the world through pretty dirty lenses. Everything seems stained and not very trustworthy, worthless. Skeptical doubt shows up in such thoughts as I'm not made for meditation, that's too difficult for me. What's the point of sitting around for hours and feeling your breath? This method doesn't seem very effective. So doubt is not an easy mind state and it is really crucial to recognize it because it truly has the potential to discourage us and to dissuade us completely from the practice. And that is the reason why it is actually considered the most dangerous of the five obstacles. Skeptical doubt is a state of inner uncertainty and indecision. The mind is somehow paralyzed, doesn't know what it wants. It is incapable and reluctant to come to inner clarity and decision, but it tends to run in endless circles. Now, not every critical thought is skeptical doubt. Also here we need to distinguish clearly, yes? There is um, careful reflection, there is inquiry, there is questioning, and this is important and useful to do. In the case of reflection and inquiry, the mind really engages with the topic and it does come to some conclusion at a point, at a certain point, even if the conclusion might be that the situation is not clear. But there is some fruit coming out of this kind of reflection. With skeptical doubt, however, we don't get anywhere. It just goes on and on and on. Someone once compared doubt to the situation of a person standing at a crossroads and not being able to decide which road to take. And so we're not going down either road. And this is precisely the effect of doubt. It paralyzes us and it prevents us from engaging, from committing to anything. Also in life, you know, it also applies to relationships, to our work, to whatever. In our practice, we can experience doubt with respect to the teachings, for instance, the Dharma, uh, with regard to the teachers, or with regard to our own capacity and potential. Actually, I think that's the most common one, that there are deep doubts about our own capacity to walk this path and to really get fruits from it. No matter what the specific doubt is, we recognize doubt by its effects, by its impact on our mind. The effect is always a weakening and undermining effect. So skeptical doubt erodes the trust and the energy that we need for this practice. 
And sometimes it can even be the voice that tells us to give up and to just plunk the whole project. So we really need to be alert when doubt arises because it's not always obvious. In my experience, skeptical doubt particularly thrives in those moments when we encounter difficulties or uncertainties and when we are not willing to bear the difficult emotions of feeling uncertain, challenged or struggling, but try to escape them by going into excessive thought. However, if we do this, if we just react to difficult feelings in this way, um, we give up a broader aspiration. So it's important to recognize those difficult emotions underlying skeptical doubt and not to follow them, but rather than to recommit to do the practice. I like what Chuladasa writes. We can never succeed at any difficult task if we simply abandon whatever makes us uncertain. The ultimate remedy for doubt is the trust and confidence that comes from success and success depends on persistent effort. So what we need if we find ourselves doubting is persistent and consistent practice and patience. The traditional antidote to skeptical doubt is sustained attention, this ability to stay with an object, to really receive the sensations related to this object. If we keep training in this, doubt will gradually subside. So, we've covered all those five hindrances. Um, central desire, aversion or ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. And... You know, if we keep practicing these patterns of hindrances, they will get weaker, they will decrease. It is a natural process. It's not a process of, you know, four days or two years or so. And sometimes even at later stages, they can re-arise. So it's important just to know that, you know, the process has its own power. And if we continue... Um, just engaging with the practice, giving ourselves to the practice, just due to the laws of causes and conditions, it will bear fruits. And it is really a path that will make us more free from those defilements, from those hindrances. And I would just like to once again read the quote, part of the quote from the beginning. Luminous Practitioners is the mind, and it is freed from incoming defilements. The well-instructed disciple of the noble ones discerns that as it actually is present, which is why I tell you that for the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, there is development of the mind. So... Let's just sit for a moment.
thank you for your attention. So we have 25 minutes of walking meditation before the last sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.